Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. A portrait of God's family. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. I don't know what kind of relationship you had with your father, but my relationship with my father was fairly good in that he died when I was eight years old. But up until that point, I had only fond memories with just a few exceptions. And a lot of people get hung up on that relationship here on the earth. Either it was good, bad, ugly, or sometimes even worse, indifferent with their father. But needless to say, our Heavenly Father is someone who is completely different than the rest. And notice this phrase here. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. This phrase here, manner of love, speaks about the unique nature of the love that was given to us. It's a very unique nature. It's something that is different. Something that sets itself apart from everything else that we have ever experienced in our lives. In fact, the love of the Father, this heavenly great Father, far exceeds any possibility that man could produce on his own, even in filled with the Holy Spirit. It is a unique love only for God Himself, and He gives it to us. And here's the nature of that love. That this great and pure and holy God will look at us and call us children of God. Imagine being taken into a room where a will will be read. And you wait anxiously because you know that this was a very important will. The person who died was very wealthy. In fact, they were the most wealthy person in the world. And as they read off the list of everything that you receive, your, your smile just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger until you finally realize, I can't believe everything that was given to me. In fact, there's probably no one who's ever existed before that has been given this much. And with great joy, yet at the same time sadness, because you miss the person, you realize someone walks in and says, all right, by the way, the person who gave you all of this really isn't dead. They're alive and they want to give that to you just because they love you. That's the manner of love, and that is the inheritance and the love that God has bestowed upon us by calling us His children. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, states it very well. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us In Him, speaking of Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved." 
What a blessing. Now, I don't know if you know this, but none of us in here actually deserve that. We feel pretty good because we live in a Christianized nation. In fact, sometimes you may say that you're very insulated from the world and that you live a very homogenized, sweet existence at home. But make no mistake, mankind was lost and on a downward slide toward an existence and an eternity away from God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Each one has gone his own way, and mankind has stayed in a course of rebellion against God. Up until the advent of Jesus, as we spoke of next week, mankind was lost and desperately in need of a Savior. And then when Jesus came on the scene, that's exactly what we see. We see this amazing Savior, this great love, giving His life for us, and now allowing us into the family of God as a portion of his own inheritance by his own will. Now, when it says it's own, his own will, that means that none of us in here coerced God into loving him. We didn't stand around and say, oh, 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 pick me. I'm the one. Remember, I'm, I'm the one over here. I'm the good looking sinner. I'm cute. You'll enjoy me on trips. I'm a lot of fun. No. We were lost and on our way from God and all of a sudden His Spirit condescended and began to draw us in and we fell to our knees and said, Oh Lord, I need You desperately. And He calls us sons and makes us sons by His Spirit. Now that's a family you want to be a part of. Some of you I know are thinking, Well, I would like to be a part of a different family than the one I grew up in. I don't know, maybe you thought you'd like to be in Bill Gates' family. Imagine reading that will. Yes, keep going. I'm still awake. Okay, that wasn't that funny. Now, but I always imagined, since my dad died at an early age, I always wanted to be a part of Bill Cosby's family. You know, he just sort of seemed like the funniest, best dad that anybody had ever seen. Because he would look at, and it's all pretend by the way, but he would look at his son like, oh, you're such an idiot, but I love you, and I'm going to correct you and help you along the way. And so I would always hope, I I would like to be his son. I think that would be a lot of fun. But in actuality, our heart's desire really desires to be children of God, who really loves us, who accepts us just the way we are, and knows who we are intimately. And brings us to our second point. Not only are we born into a royal family, an inheritance of heaven, but the second part of this voice, of this verse, lets us know that we're born into a very close, intimate family. He says, therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world longs for intimacy. We have chat rooms all over the internet. You know, that's one of the weirdest ways to become intimate than I could ever imagine. You know, I mean, I can imagine us one day getting so dysfunctional that we may meet a friend on the street and says, Quick, I'll run home and get on my computer, you get on yours and we'll talk. Okay, you really didn't get that, but you'll get it later. That somehow we need uh, electronics to communicate. 
But we long for intimacy. We want relationships. There are chat lines. There are dating lines. And there's all of this information out there so that somehow we can connect with another person. We long and have a deep desire for intimacy. But God's family is the real beginning or the the one that really started intimacy and lets humanity know what intimacy is all about. Now, I have a certain level of intimacy with my kids at home. One of the things we like to do is as soon as we get into the house, it's probably like your home. um, My kids love to run up to me and and grab what they did at school that day and, and come up and say, Dad, look what I did. And let me tell you all about my day. And they want to share everything that's happened with them in that day. Um, And even we have others who like to share other conveniences with us, like the bed. Our four-year-old right now has been officially banished from the bed. However, somewhere in the night, he he manages to magically transform himself or transport himself in the middle of our covers right up next to me or against Carly. And I know that he's there because usually his feet wind up right in the middle of my back. And I'm reminded of the banishment rule. But he desires intimacy in relationship with us. And, and I have an intimacy with the f- staff here. A very close fellowship with brothers and sisters. We work together. We pray together. But real intimacy is found within the family of Jesus. Uh, John chapter 17 beginning in verse 20. If you'd like to turn there, very, very pointed words of Jesus. He says, speaking to the Father, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me and they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. You can't find any greater words of intimacy in the world. That's God's desire. That's Jesus Christ praying to the Father concerning us. Not only the ones there who believed, but those who would come afterwards. We fall into that category. It's those who have come afterwards. It's us. And His desire is that we would be in relationship just like He and the Father in relationship. We would be one in Him. Can you imagine that? You know, sometimes you find that one person in life who becomes that strong, powerful friend that you know that you can call and you can tell everything. The Father and the Son have that unique relationship of being as one essence and one being. That you cannot find any closer intimacy in the world. All right. Look with me at verse 2. Of 1 John 3. He said, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Not only are we born into a close family, 
but we are promised complete transformation. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I've completely made it as a Christian. Any of you brave enough to raise your hand? All right. Uh Uh-oh, I caught one. Now, I know that I'm doing a lot better than I used to. And I've grown from the point when I first came to Christ. I mean, I've grown a lot. And I've watched many of you grow as well. But he's bringing us to a point here that we are not where we will one day be. In fact, if you wanted to uh, break the journey of the Christian up, or his transformation, or his or her transformation, it would go something like this. First, we went from death to life. And that is, before we knew Jesus, we were spiritually dead to the things of God. Alive physically, but spiritually dead to the things of God. And then once you come to Christ and you're born again, you're born of His seed, and you're new. You have a new birth. But then from there we move on from sinner to saint. We move through the process that is called sanctification. And that is, we have apprehended what God has done for us, but we begin to apply it into our life on a daily basis. And we begin to grow and manifest that change as we walk through our life. And then thirdly, we move from earthly bodies into heavenly bodies. And that is the resurrection. And this is what is spoken of here. It is that complete perfect work of transformation that Jesus does. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll look at verse 42. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. Now, when it's speaking of sown here, he's talking about burying it in the ground. But it's the the language that is used for planting something. It is planted in the ground. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not the first, but the natural, and afterwards the spiritual. The first man was of earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And here's the point. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Let me ungarble all that. (laughs) What he's saying is, is that there are two types of bodies. You have the physical body, which is represented by Adam. Adam and Eve in the garden. We are told that God formed Adam from the dust and he breathed into his nostrils. And Adam at that point became a living being. And the woman was taken from Adam. So the two shared very genetic material, DNA, and they came from the dust, from the the material and elements here on the earth. That's the first man. 
The first man became a sinner. The first man was fallen. But then God sent the second man, which was from heaven, Jesus Christ. And he became a living being. And as he rose from the dead, he became the first fruits of many who would come afterwards. He became sort of the root at the bottom of the tree that produced millions after him. So the first man was from the dust. The second was the heavenly. And what he's saying here is that you're going to sow this body in the ground unless Jesus returns for us in the rapture. In the twinkling of an eye, in the, in the moment, we will be caught up in the air with the Lord. But if you don't make it on that day, chances are pretty good. The statistics on death are very astounding. One out of every one person dies so far on the earth and they are put in the ground. And the body will be sown into the ground. But God will even raise that corruptible body up one day into the image of the new man. Just as Jesus was resurrected, God will complete the cycle completely. And we will be just as Jesus is. Will not that be a day? Can you imagine that? I don't know about you, but the older I get... I mean, there are more aches and pains. I found out this week specifically, whenever I start to sit down, I give the sit down groan, the, oh. And then when you get up, it's a, oh. Once you're moving, you're okay. But it's the in-between of sitting down and getting up. It's kind of hard. Well, one day we will exist in a very transformed, amazing body. So we're on the road to that. We've been born again, and now we're in the process of sanctification being changed. But it hasn't been completely revealed where we will be and what we will, sh- what we will look like. Okay, look at me. Look, look with me at 1 John 3, verse 3. I did it. And everyone who has this hope, that is the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the transformation. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We are given not only a hope of eternity, but a hope that transforms and purifies. This equals sanctification and holiness. Those are two big Ten dollar theological words. Sanctification is merely the process of transforming a believer right now into the image of Christ as he lives here on the earth. Holiness speaks about the very nature of that person. It speaks of the nature of Jesus. It speaks of the nature of the Father. And that holiness says that we are separate from everything else. If you are holy, you are separated from from the rest of the world. As if to say, I am holy unto my wife and she is holy unto me. In the very generic sense of the word, it means to be separated unto everyone else. To say, I am no longer connected to anyone else romantically. I have given my heart to one person. So sanctification purifies, but there's a sense of holiness directed purely to the Lord. The believer knows what is coming and he passionately desires The purity of God now. 
He knows that it will one day be in the future, and I look forward to that. But there is just desire. I have this hope in me that says, I want that purity in my life now. I don't want to settle for some kind of mediocre garbage that I can just wallow in my sin and live and cling to the world. I want to be holy and separated only for God's work and for His kingdom. Therefore, whoever has this hope steadfast in them, they long for the purity and the relationship of the Lord right now. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3. Keep your fingers here. And in verse 12, Paul echoes this sentiment. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As that great psalm says, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs after you, O God. A pure life, my friends, is a life that is powerful. Because it is connected to the source of life. It's connected to the living waters of the living God. It's connected to the pure oxygen of heaven that the soul that thirsts after God desperately needs. And let me just break this down. The closer you grow in your relationship to the Lord and recognize your position in the family of God, the greater your desire for the things of God, and for the things of heaven. There is a sense that the more that you taste the goodness and the purity of the living water, that your mind and your heart are set upon the things above, and everything here begins to pale in comparison to the glory that is in Christ. All right, I think that's a pretty good portrait of the family of God. Look with me at verse 4 of 1 John 3. And we're going to take excerpts from verse 4, verse 6, and verse 8. And the reason that we're going to do this is that the way that John has set this passage up is that he'll make a a clear statement, either a negative statement or a positive statement about sin, and then he'll follow it up with a response in the negative. And so as you read through this, it reads well as a letter, but to talk about it and and go through it in an expositional teaching is a little hard. So I've arranged it so that we look first at all the negative statements concerning sin, a family portrait of sin. Verse 4, he says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Skip down to verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor knows him. And in verse 8, the beginning part, he says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, I have to admit, when I first read these pages, I thought, when I was younger, I thought, oh man, I'm sunk. And I'm really bummed out. 
Because the first chapter talked about whoever confesses his sin, you know, the Lord cleanses him from all unrighteousness. And whoever says that he hasn't sinned is a liar. And then all of a sudden it says here, whosoever sins is of the devil. I'm thinking, okay, um, I know the thing I did on Monday was sort of a sin. Depends on how you look at it. Um, the three things I did Tuesday, um, yeah, those are sins. Those are really, okay. I really don't want to read this passage anymore. I'll go back to Psalms, but do you ever read this? I mean, have you read this and just kind of get scared all of a sudden you think I'm in trouble. You know, I I want to be a child of heaven. I want to have my portrait in the kingdom of heaven with the big smile over here. It's me. Good news, my friends. Good news and bad news. The phrase here in verse 4 that says, whoever commits sin, is a phrase that speaks about a one who is continually sinning. Now, if you'll remember in our early stu- earlier studies, we talked about the one who is saying. It's a, it's a participle. It's a relative participle, very simple participle in Greek. And we, we made the difference between the one who is saying these things and then there is the one who is actually doing the will of God and there is a juxtaposition of the two. One is saying, but one is actually doing. Well, in this passage, you find another one of these interesting participles. Ha poyon, the one making tain hamartion, which the one who is making sin, and it speaks about one who is in the habitual, continual process of building and creating and being a part of sin. In verse 8, he uses another phrase. It says, he who sins. This is ha hamartanon, which is the one who is sinning. That is, if any time you could find him, he would constantly be in the process of sinning. So the first thing that we need to know about this is that when he's speaking about the one who sins here, he's saying the one who is continually, habitually, fervently sinning as a matter and course of living. Now the word here for sin is hamartia which many of you know means to miss the mark. But it holds much greater purpose and force. A lot of times it is connected with transgression, which means going against God's law. And it's also connected with wickedness. Really what it means is not living up to a standard, a pre-described standard that's been given to us by God. So the one who is habitually missing the mark with God, living in a state of wickedness and constant rebellion against him, that is the person who is sinning here. First of all, we note in the first part of verse 8 is that this family portrait of sin tells us that the person who is habitually sinning is of the devil. He who sins... It says, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The devil was the first sinner. He's the guy who started all of this rebellion against God. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, we read these words. How you are fallen from heaven. 
O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. At the very heart of the first sinner, he was an angelic being, a covering cherub, very close to the presence of God. And in the midst of perfection and beauty, and we see this. Rebellion and pride. And rebellion and pride, my friends, are at the heart of every sin that has ever been committed on the earth. On the earth and the heaven and under the earth. Rebellion and pride. Doing things your own way. You say, I want to do things my way as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. You know, it's real easy to look around and find somebody who is a worse sinner than you are. Can't you do it? I'm sure you can name five people right now. Five people that are on your prayer list. (laughs) That, you know, I'm glad I'm friends with them because it always makes me look better. You know, there's a sense of saying that I know a lot of people who are much worse sinners than myself. But at the, the heart of it all, someone who lives a very moral life and may be perceived as a very good person, if they do not recognize the living God and they flaunt their autonomy in front of Him and say, I'm going to do what I want to do, they are speaking out of the very heart from the pit of hell, Satan himself, who, it doesn't say, wanted to go do immoral things, although pride and rebelliousness led to that. But his first sin was, I'm going to be like God, and I'm going to receive the glory, and I'm going to do it my way. That is the heart of sin, my friends. That's the real heart. That's the progenitive nature of where all sin comes from. Not only was he the first sinner, but he was the first to tempt humans. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Adam and Eve, great people, started out, uh, had a nice life, nice garden, but they blew it. They listened to the serpent and they were drawn into sin and they fell. And the children that came after them, from them, were born into sin at that point. So... People are sinners not only by choice, but by nature. Look with me at verse 4 in the same chapter. It's those who also practice lawlessness. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Uh, the, there's a new um, English Standard Version that reads like this. It says, Everyone who makes his practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. The word there in Greek for lawlessness basically means no law. That's it. Lawlessness sounds like a big, scary word, but actually what it means is just no law. That is, I do not receive any authority that is over me whatsoever. There is no law. I am a law unto myself. So whoever commits this is practicing sin. 
And I have to say something about us as humans. We are pretty good at sinning, aren't we? Would you say? It comes kind of natural. And we've been practicing at it a lot. In fact, some of us have got really good at it. And that's what he's speaking of here. Whoever practices this idea that I have no authority, there is no law, is sinning in a constant state of habitual sinning before God. Not only do they practice lawlessness, but they do not know God. Look in verse 6, the second portion. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Again, the English Standard Version says, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The one who is continually sinning has never actually seen or come in contact with the reality of Jesus Christ. Because if you can live in a constant state of rebellion against God and saying, hey, look, I have no law above me. I don't need anything. I'm my own person. You've never really experienced the true nature of the living God. Because once you meet Him, His power and His perfection, your mind is forever etched with a sense of His presence, His glory, and His majesty. So the one who is habitually in rebellion against God, they may come to you and say, well, I know who God is. I'm a spiritual person. I seek after the things of God. But yet if you're living in a constant state of rebellion, it's absolutely false. Because once you come in contact with God, you will never be the same. A true knowledge of God causes us to detest the unprofitable works of darkness and sin. All right. Let's look back at verse 5. And we notice a portrait of Jesus. We find this portrait of Jesus in the first part of verse 5 and the second part of verse 8. Notice his mission in the first part of verse 5. He says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. He was manifested or made or revealed in this world to take away our sins. That is why he came. He came to take mankind away from this lost position that we've been held in for centuries. None of us in this room or any humans that have preceded us have had the ability to cleanse our own selves from sin. And so Jesus, seeing our great need has manifested or come into the flesh and revealed Himself to us and done His work that He would take away our sins. Second, we notice in the second part of verse 8 is that He was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. The devil not only is the beginner of sin, the person who started it, but he's also called as our adversary, our enemy, In fact, uh, there is a word that is used for him. He is the agent provocateur. That is, he is someone who not only accuses the saints and hates the saints, but he's the one who will bring an accusation against them in the court of heaven. He'll look at you and say, well, look at this person over here. Look at all that they've done. I may be in a part of their sin and their rebellion, but look at everything that they've done. He accuses the brethren. The two most fierce enemies of humanity are sin and the devil. Period. 
He hates humanity. We have a natural propensity to sin, and we have an enemy who is actively pursuing to destroy us. And that is the portrait of the family of sin. It's a tragic portrait, and it's a family that's built with sorrow. But Jesus seeks to destroy his works. All right, look with me at verse 6 and verse 7. We see the practice of Jesus' people, of his family members. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Remember that word abide, we talk about to dwell with richly, to live, to take up abode with him. Again, he's using this as a participle, a simple relative participle. That is the one who is currently habitually abiding with him is not in a state of sin. Now, does the Christian sin? Absolutely. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, we are told that... If we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And we're going to make mistakes along the way. You can guarantee it. But here's the unique thing about our our relationship with God. Is that the believer is not in a constant state of sinning and rebellion against God. He is in a constant state of abiding And because he is abiding and making it his practice to abide and live with the Lord, he is not continually, habitually sinning. The second part of verse 7, it says, He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. There again, we read that word. The one who is making righteousness. Ha poyon, the one who is continually practicing and in the process of being righteous is righteous just like he's righteous. You know, there's an old saying that says, good trees produce good fruits. And as someone once said in my hometown of Bledsoe, Texas, you can't get oranges from a stinkweed. You might want to write that down. It's free. We, along with the world, can deceive ourselves into thinking that we can follow Jesus and live in immorality and rebellion. It's impossible. You can't. I'll tell you why. Because you're born of heavenly stock. Period. You're born of God and you have heavenly DNA in you. Look with me at verse 9 and we'll begin to close. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Just as Jesus told Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He was speaking of this birth. And he reveals here that those who are born of God have the spiritual DNA within them. The word that is used for seed there is sperma. And it speaks about the kernel of a seed which holds the genetic makeup that will continue the furtherance of that plant and the life of that plant beyond its own self. That's what seed does. 
So even though we have this earthen vessel, this body that's prone to sin, we have an incorruptible seed in us that is taking root and is growing and one day will live beyond this body in perfection before God. But he says, because you and I have that seed in us, God's seed abides in us and he cannot keep on sinning because he is born of God. God will not let you stay in a constant state of rebellion against him. It's just not going to happen. You may be disciplined. You may be punished. You may be allowed to go for a while. But if you're really born of the Spirit of God, it tells us in Hebrews that those whom he loves, he chastens. But his chastening and his rebuke and his discipline is not grievous to us because it's not for his own sake, but it's for our good that we may produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness in our lives. That's the difference. Very simple, summed up. The one who continually practices to sin with no conscience to God doesn't belong to him. The one who belongs to him may struggle against sin, may have problems with sin, but he is habitually practicing righteousness and a good conscience toward God. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.